The following message by Pastor Scott is brought to you by Together in Christ. Would you join me in prayer one more time this morning before we go into his word? Father, by way of your sovereign hand, you have a way of directing our lives so that by your means, you show us when we are standing on unfirm, unsafe, dangerous, treacherous ground. And you move us many times in ways that make us uncomfortable. But God, you do it in love that you may direct us towards the solid rock of Christ so that we may not find ourselves in the sinking sand. Lord, I pray today that we would see your hand, a sovereign, infinitely caring for us, that however it is you are directing our lives, whatever challenges and trials we may be found in, Lord, that today you would remind us of the goodness and the love and the care that you have for us, that you have demonstrated in your son, Christ. Father, would you be with me? Help me be clear and show us what you would say to us in your word this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please uh, open your Bible to Psalm 42? We're gonna continue the summer series that we've been doing, uh, looking at various Psalms, uh, and uh, we've done uh, several up to this point, and uh, maybe you've seen it already this summer, uh, or maybe I know that Psalms are very uh, popular in terms of devotional reading at times, and so maybe you've read through the Psalms yourself before. It doesn't, very, it doesn't really take much time of reading through the Psalms to see in the Psalms there's a wide variety uh, there. There are some songs, uh, they are songs. There are some Psalms and songs that sound very joyful and speak of the, the great moments in life. And then there are some that are more sober and sobering. And uh, we've covered several different kinds already uh, this summer. What I'd like to look at today, Psalm 42, is not one of those psalms that kind of covers the, the high places, the exciting times of our lives. Instead, what it does is it kind of takes a deep dive and looks at one of the more shadowy seasons that we may experience in our lives. And I think while that may, uh, may not be the most exciting of things to walk out and feel pumped up and encouraged and excited, I think for, for me at least, I know, in seasons that are difficult and that you might say are shadowy in our lives, it is a great encouragement to know that God's word does not tell us to act like life is always rosy and life is always good and life is never devoid of pain or hardship, but it's actually encouraging to see that it acknowledges that we will go through seasons of trial and of difficulty and it's good to know when we see what we're going to see in Psalm 42, that if, if you are discouraged, you shouldn't think that something is wrong because scripture acknowledges that those times will come. My hope though is that what we will be able to see is through this Psalm, what we are to do and what we are to see and where we are to place our hope in the times when we are tempted to have none. And so what is it that we are to do? And so I wouldn't be surprised if maybe some of you are in that shadowy season right now, maybe you have been for a while, maybe it's been a difficult time, 
or uh, if you are not yourself, I guarantee that every person in this room knows someone who is, that they have heard is struggling to stay encouraged, is struggling maybe to get out of bed in the morning, struggling to find purpose in life and what they are to do. And so my prayer is that today we would be renewed of what our purpose is and where our hope can be found Um, because we are tempted to find it in many places. And as I prayed and as we just sang, there are many places where we will try to put our feet, but God in his grace pulls it out from underneath us so that our feet may find a more sure foundation and sure hope in Christ. And so I would invite you, if you haven't yet, to turn to Psalm 42. I'd like to read the whole Psalm, and I'm actually also gonna read Psalm 43 to go with it. Um, Most commentators uh, have uh, found agreement that these Psalms uh, are side by side, and they do belong together. And you'll see that, I think, because they use some similar language. They even uh, say the exact same thing in a couple of places. But if you would follow along with me as I read through Psalm 42 and 43, as we get started. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 42 and 43 read as a, almost like a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, where you hear in one sentence complaint 
and discouragement, even despair from the author who wrote it. But then in the very next phrase, you hear a glimmer of hope. But then right back to the complaint and the discouragement, only to find themselves once again finding hope. Complaint, hope, complaint, hope. And that is how it is many times for us in those seasons of life that are difficult, that are trials. One day, I feel fine. The next day, I'm discouraged. One day, I feel like I'm getting better. The next day, I feel like I'm getting worse. One day, I think I might be over this. The next day, I'm worse than I've ever been before. And this goes back and forth, back and forth, where we see if, if we begin to question if there is gonna be any end to what's going on. Is it just gonna be this constant back and forth, back and forth? There may be many reasons that a person would find themselves discouraged. You might even say depressed to a point where they feel like life is just a back and forth, back and forth. But I think what we see in this Psalm at the very beginning in the first three verses, we're able to see that there is something deeper going on in this person's life that wrote this at the time. And there might be something deeper going on in your life as well that is more than just the sum of the circumstances that you find yourself in that has maybe led to this difficult season of life, whether it was a loved one that was lost or a challenge that you're having to try to overcome that you're not sure about, or a difficult decision that's come your way. There is something deeper going on beneath the surface in this Psalm that I think is very important for us to see because it, at this, we find the root of much of what ails us if we find ourselves in the season of discouragement, I think. But look with me at verses one through three specifically and listen to what it is that the psalmist that wrote this is asking for and what it is they miss that they feel is gone, that they so desperately want to return back to their life. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. <clears throat> when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It might've been a specific situation that led to this time and trial, but it's pretty clear when you look at the first three verses of, the, verses of this Psalm, what it is that is ailing this person so deep in their soul is that they feel as if they have been cut off from God himself to the point where they feel like a, a deer that is running from a predator, perhaps, so tired, so weary, so thirsty. Maybe you've been hungry before, or you've had a craving for a certain food. It's easy to curb cravings, and you can continue to function even when you're hungry, but when thirst takes over, when your mouth becomes dry and chalky, when you can't even swallow, it's as if you can't do anything else but think about how thirsty you are and sit down and pray that water comes from somewhere soon. They are thirsty for God himself. It says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? On top of that, he speaks of taunts from enemies that are coming from the outside in verse three when he says, 
They say to me all the day long, where is your God? Where is he? You're thirsty. You need help. Where is he? Why isn't he giving it to you? The picture painted here is of a poor soul that is so sorrowful, so weak, so thirsty. They're not even eating. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. Have you ever been so sorrowful that you have no appetite at all except to cry, except to shed tears as if your tears would sustain you and fix the thirst that you have? The picture I think here is of a person who is suffering so much that when they hear the taunt, where is your God? They are tempted to start asking that question themselves. God, where are you? Why have you left me? Are you still there? We are led at times and seasons that are so difficult to begin questioning, is, is God still good? Is God actually faithful? Does he actually love me? And even at times we question, does God even exist? Have I been duped to believe a lie? Because here I am suffering in a trial, being tormented by this, reaching out to God saying, God, I have prayed to you. No answer. God, I'm waiting and I've been waiting a long time. Why haven't you done anything? Where is my God? You start to believe, don't you? The taunt that you hear from the enemies. It starts to make its way in. And the point, it comes to a point where it's not so much the situation in life that you are dealing with right now that led to where you are. At this point, when you are so far down in the dumps, you're beginning to ask the question, God, where are you? And that then becomes the great doubt and cause of torment and trouble in your soul. You feel forsaken by God, cut off from him with no help and with no hope. That's where they find themselves, cut off from God. It's a season where we ask ourselves the same question in verse nine. I say to my rock, why have you forgotten me? Or he'll say in chapter 43, verse two, He'll say, for you are the God in whom I take refuge, but why have you rejected me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? We ask these questions and there seems to be no answer in return. And it doesn't help when we are maybe surrounded by people in our family, maybe people that we work with who are already taunting us, who do not follow the Lord, who do not even believe in God. And they've, they've already had conversations with you telling you, you're a fool for believing in God. And then when you're plunged into a season like this, they say even more, you are a fool for believing in God. See, if your God was real, this wouldn't be happening to you. These are the taunts that come to us from the enemy. It sounds a lot like Job's wife once Job had everything taken away from him, all things that he enjoyed in his life taken, his wife said to him, do you remember? Job, why do you hang on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Just get it over with. Curse him. If this is how he's gonna treat you, 
toss him away. We're tempted to do that from time to time. And it's in these seasons, like all we have to go on are the memories that we can look back on that were pleasant at the time. He reflects on those. Look at verse four. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He's remembering back at the times when he felt as if God was with him and he was with God's people and he was singing glad shouts of praise, worshiping his Lord. Most Bible scholars believe that David is the author of this psalm, that he wrote this and that it was written in one of two seasons of his life. It was either when he was fleeing Saul because Saul was pursuing after him because he felt threatened by him, or it was while David was actually already king later on and his son Absalom led a revolt against him and took over Jerusalem and David was forced to flee out of Jerusalem. And so in a very real sense, what most scholars believe is that When he's saying this, as he's writing this, he's reflecting on the fact that he is literally cut off from worshiping his Lord because he is not, he's not granted access to the temple. He's not able to go to the place of worship where he would lead the throng, the the throng in procession, where he would go to the house of God, the tabernacle, the temple to worship his Lord. He was physically cut off. These seasons in our lives only get exponentially worse if you have actually been physically cut off from the Lord. Whether that's joining in here for corporate worship like you are today together, or if you've been cut off from your brothers and your sisters in Christ that encourage you daily. Maybe it's not something that has acted on the outside of you, but you've cut yourself off. It's easy to do that in seasons of discouragement, to want to be alone, to want to, to segregate ourselves away, to cut ourselves off from the Lord, to, to not go to church to worship together, to not even read the word, to not go to the Lord in prayer. And it's when we cut ourselves off that this season becomes especially dark and dreary and difficult. I think we've all experienced a little bit of that over the last year as we've been physically kept from, co- from coming together, worshiping the Lord. I've had to stay at home. For those of you that maybe have struggled with depression and hard thoughts and feelings in the past, it just became that much worse because you were cut off from worshiping God with God's people. It makes it very, very, very difficult to find any sense of hope when you feel like you can't even come to the house of God to find help. But I also know it's very true, and I think that you would understand this, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, that sometimes it is possible to be here, but not be here. It's possible to be here at church, but not feel any benefit from being here. You walk out just as, just, just as much wondering what is going on and what's happening as you were when you came. One of the things that makes these seasons especially difficult is when you feel like you are doing all of the right things, all of the things that have been prescribed to you by maybe me or Tim or Spencer or Matt as your pastors. You're saying, Pastor, you tell me to read my Bible every day and pray every day. Well, I'm doing that. 
It doesn't, it's not helping. I've been like this for months. You tell me to come to church. It's important to be at church. It's important to sing corporately together and to pray together and to hear God's word preached. Well, I, I muster up enough strength to get out of bed in the morning and I come here and then I go back home to misery. You tell me that it will get better over time. Well, pastor, it's been a long time and it doesn't feel much better. You feel like a man overboard in the ocean, trying to stay afloat. You've survived one wave and you've been able to keep your head above the waves, but then as soon as that wave is gone, another one comes. And you can identify with what he says in verse seven, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. It's this ongoing onslaught and torrent of discouragement and despair in these hard times. And so while it feels good to know that the Bible acknowledges these difficult, hard times in our lives, it would feel a lot better if we knew the answer to them. It would feel a lot better if we were instructed of how to find our way. If we are overboard at sea, how are we to find our way back to shore? What are we to do to lift up the signal so that someone will come and save us? Someone will come and pick us up and bring us out of this season. I think we find our answer in Psalm 42 and 43. It might not be the answer we're looking for. It might not be an answer that works immediately, but we are at least given a direction for where shore is. We know which direction to start swimming. Three times in Psalm 42 and 43, there is a verse that is repeated. In Psalm 42, verses five and 11, and then in Psalm 43, verse five, we hear the same thing. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Again, you see a picture of internal struggle going on in David's soul here. On the one hand, he poses a rhetorical question. And he says, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? It's like, it's as if, maybe you'll be able to identify with this. It's as if he doesn't even understand why he is feeling the way he is feeling, why this is such a difficult time. He knows others that have been through this and it wasn't so hard for them. Why are you cast down, oh my soul, as if I have no control over what is going on right now? Why does it feel like a battle going on in my head? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why is this happening to me? Desperately calling out for help. But the thing I think that is important and really helpful to see about this question, why are you cast down on my soul? Whatever situation it actually was that he was facing right here, scripture does speak of enemies. He does eventually pray in 43 verse one, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. So it does seem that there is an outside influence that's going on, an enemy that is attacking him, an enemy that is opposed to him and against him. And he is saying, God, prove me to be righteous in this situation. Bring about justice for what is going on here. But who does he ask the question to? To his own heart and to his own soul. 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? It's like we see a glimpse here of the truth that the way that we respond and the way that our heart reacts is somewhat independent of the situations that are going on around us. We have, all we can do is look to ourselves and ask ourselves, why is this happening? You may not be able to control the things that are happening in the world, but what we see is an understanding that we are still to examine our own hearts and our own souls. The way that we respond in this life is not ultimately dictated by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so what does he point to as the cure, as the hope for one that is so discouraged and so downtrodden or even depressed? I do think he points us in the right direction, but I wanna be really careful here when I would use a word like cure or the solution because what I can't present to you this morning in good conscience are seven easy steps to rid yourself of depression in your life. I can't do that. The Bible does not do that. I can't give you five practices to maintain your joy throughout your life. I can't give you that. That's not what we find here. Like I said, what we find here is a beacon that directs our hope that tells us where to go and what direction to head when we find ourselves afloat in the ocean trying to keep our head above the waves. That's what we have. That's our hope. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. On the one hand, he's asking himself the question, why are you reacting like this? Why are you struggling with this? Why am I dealing with this? And on the other hand, he, he preaches to himself, so to speak. He addresses himself. He says, soul, why are you doing this? Soul, hope in God. Find your hope in him. Continue trusting in him. One day you will again praise him. You know this. He is your salvation. He is your God. Where else would you turn to find this hope? But you have to fight this, so to speak. It's like an internal battle is going on. I already referenced that he, he is praying to God. He is asking God for help. Look at verse three of chapter 43. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, oh God, my God. He makes a request of God said, God, bring me back, vindicate me, show me to be righteous in this situation. Bring me back to your holy hill where I may worship you again. He even prays that his joy would be restored, not just to come back to church and walk through the, the rote acts of worship and of prayer and of Bible study, but to return to him the joy of the Lord that comes with that so that he's not just walking through the motions like a zombie that is walking around in the hallways but has no life to them. He's saying, bring that back to me. But then in verse five, he says, hope in God. He's calling himself to the cure, which is faith. Faith is the cure. In seasons of doubt and discouragement, faith is the beacon that tells us the direction that we are to go. When we pray 
As he has prayed here in verses three and four, we pray in faith and in hope that God will be there to rescue us, that God will answer us. Maybe you're familiar with a passage in the New Testament in the book of Philippians where we are instructed to pray. Philippians chapter four, six through seven says, says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, when we hear that, we, we hear that those verses. If we're anxious about something, pray, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Understand very clearly, this peace of God that he's talking about there is not some mystical force that is just communicated to you supernaturally. When you go to God in prayer, automatically you will feel peace because you have prayed. Peace, there referenced in verse seven, I think is a byproduct of someone who believes in the Lord that has prayed to him and offered to him their requests and their needs in faith, trusting that God has heard them. God, this is my problem. I, I have no control over it. I need your help in this and I trust you to help me with this. You are my God. You know better than I do. I am putting this in your hands and I trust you. And the peace that comes that surpasses all understanding is a peace that is produced by knowing that your need is in the hands of the God of the universe and he is in control and he is dealing with it however he sees fit. That is what brings peace in that situation. Not an assurance that it's gonna be answered in the way you want it to be answered or when you want it to be answered. But it's peace knowing that God is the one that you have prayed to. God is the one that you have hope in. Peace is a byproduct of where you've put your hope. Have you put your hope in Christ? Have you put your hope in the Lord? That is where you may find peace. We exercise faith when we are in times of struggle and toil. We exercise faith, we continue to believe, we continue to trust in God. That is what we are urged to do and we have got to fight for faith. And so what does it look like to have faith and what does it look like to trust God in these seasons that might seem to not end? What are we to do? I'm mistaken, I think that people mistakenly believe sometimes that if you just have enough faith, then you won't even encounter these seasons. Or that when you encounter dark, hard seasons of life, it's because you don't have faith. And if you would simply find that faith, then you wouldn't be here anymore. I don't think that we can look at this passage and say that that is necessarily true. David in here is, is showing that I need faith. I'm having to fight for faith. I'm tempted to not have faith. I'm tempted to question if God is even there. And so I've got to pursue my heart, so to speak, and, and tell my heart, trust in the Lord. Continue to believe despite what you may be tempted to think. The very nature of faith means that sometimes faith will be hard to have. 
Because to have faith is to believe things that don't necessarily seem like they could be possible or seem like they could be true. When Sarah heard that she as an old woman that was no longer able to have children was told that she would have a child, what did she do? She laughed because that doesn't seem possible. Mary, when she was told that she was as a virgin going to give birth to the savior of the world, she had to respond in faith because that is literally impossible to happen. And so she had to believe in something that at the front of it didn't seem like it was going to be possible. And you may find yourself in a situation where to believe that God does love you, that he does care for you, will feel like you're believing in something that doesn't really seem real at times. But you've got to remember that just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. Just because you cannot sense God's love for you does not mean that it is left forever. Every day you watch the sun go below the horizon. And when it goes finally below the horizon and it gets dark outside, you don't freak out. You don't go crazy because you don't think that the sun is gone forever. You know that it will be back and you know that though you cannot see it, it is still there. So what would it look like for you to continue to have faith? How are you to encourage your brothers and sisters to continue to have faith in a season when they are tempted to lose all faith? I have five things that I think will be of help to you. Number one, we are called to trust that the events of our lives are completely within God's command. The events of our lives are completely within God's command. You might remember Job's response to his wife that I referenced earlier in Job chapter two, verse 10. He says back to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In other words, he's saying, we have received all of this good and we've only received it because God saw fit to give it to us. And in this season, God has seen fit to take it away. If we are going to receive the good from God, we must also receive the bad. We receive both. Even in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 4, 19, we are, we are taught this when he says, therefore, let those who suffer, listen to this, according to God's will. It is possible to suffer according to God's will. Let those who suffer according to God's will do what? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It is infinitely better to have a creator that is in complete control of the circumstances of your life, even if they are not the most pleasant circumstances, than it is for you to just be wandering around in the ether with nothing going on that you could ever have hope could ever get better but you have a God that is in control of all things. And we've got to continue to trust that that is true. Number two, to trust that God works all things for the good of those who love him. You're familiar maybe with Romans 8, 28. We're tempted to say many times, and I've heard before the joke that that's the worst thing to possibly ever tell anybody going through a season of suffering. I don't know if that's necessarily true to remind somebody of the truth that God does love them and that he is in control and that these things are for their good. But it's easy to ask the question, how on earth could this be for my good? How could this immense pain that I'm bearing be for my good? My answer honestly has to be, I don't know. 
I don't know. Possibly nobody knows. You may never know. It may be that God is saving you from some harsher torment that would have come otherwise. It may be that God is sanctifying your heart to have a greater trust in him, a greater hope in him. Job, as he continued to suffer through his ordeal, would later say in chapter 13, though he slay me, I will hope in him. If God deems that it is best for me that I die, I trust him with that decision. I trust him that that is, in fact, the best thing for me right now. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I don't know how this is good for me, but I know that God is good and that he is for me and he's in control. So somehow, this is good for me. And at times, you're gonna have to fight to believe that that is true. You're gonna have to call your heart to attention. Hope in God you will not find it anywhere else. Number three, to trust that God's love for you is displayed in what his son Jesus did for you on the cross, not in the current circumstances of your life. Trust that God's love is displayed for you by what Jesus did on the cross, not in the circumstances of your life. We're reminded in Romans 5, 8 that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is how he has chosen to display how much he loves you. Scripture does not say God displays his love for you by all the nice things he gives you in life and by how easy he will make your life. You are never given that promise. The promise that we are given is that God does love you. How do you know that? Because he sent his own son to go and suffer in your place that you might experience everlasting life with him. If we ever lose sight and lose focus and we begin looking to the wrong thing to gain assurance that God loves us and God cares for us, all of a sudden when that thing is plucked away, all there will go with it your assurance that God loves you and that God cares for you. So keep your eye when you are tempted to wonder, God, do you love me? God, do you care for me? God, are you still there? Remind yourself and look to the cross to see Jesus went to that for me. Yes, he does love me. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Number four, to trust that God will deliver you from this turmoil. David reminded himself of that. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. God will deliver you from this turmoil. The hard part is you don't know when he will. That's the difficult part. More importantly, to trust that God's timing is right when he will deliver you from this. Again, we're reminded in the New Testament from Peter, this time in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and then verse 13. He, he encourages the believers there with this. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. According to his promise, we are all waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. If you are a believer this morning, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you can have this guaranteed hope. One of two things will happen. Either you will get on the other side of this trial in this life, or you definitely will in the next. 
That is where your hope is. Buddhists, I don't know if you've ever met a Buddhist before or talked to one. Buddhists come to terms with the reality of suffering in this life by accepting it and embracing it. Christians have come to terms with suffering not by looking to this life, but looking to the next. And knowing that one day, all of our tears will be wiped away. One day, all of the pain and all of the sorrow that we experience will be gone forever because we will fully be in the presence of God, worshiping him with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You've got to fight to believe that your next life will be the truly better life, not this one. And then number five, trust and fight to believe that you are not alone in your suffering. One of the things that makes these hard seasons particularly difficult is if we believe that we are alone. Depression has a way of isolating you from other people, whether that be a self-isolation or being cut off from other people because you have no appetite to be around them. They have maybe no appetite to be around you. And so that's debilitating and it's hard, but you are not alone in this world. God has made you part of a church that loves you and cares for you and seeks to walk with you in this life. This is one of the reasons that we started home groups, that we've been encouraging you as much as we can to join a home group. It's simply a time to be together. There's no, there's no real plan in terms of what you're gonna study in the Bible because sometimes what you need as a Christian is just to be around other Christians. That's what made COVID so difficult when we were not able to gather together and to be together is that we weren't able to encourage each other. We, all of a sudden we would hear weeks later after some terrible tragedy has happened in your life and we wouldn't have been there because we weren't around each other. So making a point to be around each other, to love one another is important. But I think even more than that, at times, it's so isolating because you feel as if there's nobody here that's experienced what I'm experiencing. There's nobody here that can sympathize with me truly. That may be true. There's nobody in these seats that might be able to know exactly what it is you're going through. But I think you should be encouraged this morning to know that you have a savior that does. You have a savior that knows exactly what you are feeling. In the process of securing our salvation, Jesus Christ endured more suffering and more grief than we can ever imagine. I would remind you this morning, if, if you wonder if there is anybody out there that understands, anyone that sees, anyone that knows the deep pain and torment that you are experiencing, I would remind you this morning of that famous passage in Isaiah 53. I'm gonna read verses three through 12. I just want you to listen to this to our savior and what he underwent. I believe this is talking about Jesus. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his land. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him portion with the enemy and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressions. When you are tempted to be overtaken with grief and sorrow, remind yourself of the savior that ran directly for the grief, directly towards the sorrow knowing what he was going to experience, knowing what it was going to be. You may remember what Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 38. He told his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He knew what was coming. He even pleaded with God that there might be another way. But in the end, what did he do? He entrusted his soul to the creator that is faithful. And he trusted in his father's plan and he ran headlong towards it, knowing what was coming. It's hard to not be reminded of our savior's grief when we read this. It's hard to not remember Jesus' words. When you hear this psalmist say things like, why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? Why do you let this go on? It's hard to not remember Jesus' words from the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've asked that question of God, God, where are you? God, have you forgotten me? You can, you can find comfort in this. Jesus has asked that same question. Why have you forsaken me? He has experienced grief as you have. And he has trusted his father because he knew as he was going to death, he would taste new life. He would rise from the dead. You are not alone in your suffering. If you feel as though there is no human being alive today that can sympathize with you in your grief, you do have a savior that can. And he has offered to save your soul from death so that you may find hope, so that you can put your hope in God. Not hope that this life would change it all, but hope that your next life, at the very least, would be glorious, where you would once again join in song and procession with the people of God, praising and worshiping him. My prayer is that you would be encouraged with that beacon of hope to know at least what the right direction is to go today. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, your sovereign hand is in complete control. And Lord, many times we find ourselves in seasons where it is difficult to believe 
that you are our God, that you are good, that you love us, that you care for us, that you're even there. Lord, I pray that you would help us together today as we've come together to worship you as a body, Lord, that we would say to ourselves, hope in God. We know that we will want to once again see you. You are our salvation. You are our God. There is nowhere else that we may place our hope and find assurance. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Scott from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.